and I would encourage anyone who's thinking about starting a company to use this framework. It was one of these things that I was losing sleep over in terms of my excitement about it. It was one of these things where I said, if I don't do this, I'll probably spend the rest of my life regretting that I didn't at least try it. But I think that's a good litmus test to think about if you're not sure whether or not you want to start your company. Do you feel that passionate about it? If you do, then maybe it's the right thing to do. But if, you're, if you don't, then maybe you shouldn't. Because I, I think if you're going to do a, a startup right, you have to be all in. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Today, we have a big get on the show. Well, I think that's a phrase people use when they talk about someone who's a big deal. We have Isaac Cotto. He's the managing director of Techstars Seattle. Techstars is a startup accelerator that's one of the biggest ones in the world. And Isaac's background is extremely impressive, from having degrees from Stanford and Harvard to being a venture capitalist that spent $130 million in selling companies to Uber and Google. He's seen a lot of companies go from idea to massive success. In this episode, we talk about what he looks for in a founding team, industries he's excited about, and I even get one half-baked startup idea from him. And then he shares stories from being a venture capitalist to leaving that to, to go to Iceland and raise $200 million for a company. He also breaks down the process and framework he uses to think about what to work on next and where to put his time and energy that's really helpful. So if you're a founder, if you're working for a startup, or you're looking to invest in one, grab your notebook, get your Evernote app, fired up, whatever, whatever you use. Because this one is packed with a lot of helpful tips and insights that I really think can help you, especially for anyone starting today. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Isaac, would you introduce yourself? Yeah, great. Jim, thanks for having me. And, and thanks, as always, for, for mentoring at our program at Techstars Seattle. You, are, you all are the heartbeat of the program. We really appreciate it. So I am, my name is Isaac Kato. I'm the managing director of Techstars Seattle, which is one of the, one of the biggest uh, global accelerator businesses in the world. I, by background, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've started a couple companies. I've run a few of them, had a couple good exits, raised a lot of money for those companies along the way. But I was also a uh, professional VC for for about a decade, and since then, I've done a lot of angel investing. So, I've had uh, the the pleasure of sitting on both sides of the fence as both an operator, an entrepreneur, and founder, as well as uh, as an investor. And I live here in I live here in, in uh, today sunny Bellevue. Not normally sunny, but today I live in Bellevue. I, it's sunny, and I have a, an awesome family. And that's that's the high level frankly, kind of boring stuff. No, that, it's really fun going through your background. I was telling you beforehand, you've done so many impressive things that I really want to get into because you've done big things with big exits, not just once, but multiple times. And I think there's a lot to learn from that. But before we do that, could you just, for people that don't know, like what is Techstars? What's a startup accelerator? Yeah, great. Good question. So a startup accelerator, and, and there are many different flavors of it, so I, I should really talk about Techstars. But what we do at Techstars is we look for really awesome founders or founding teams uh, who have identified a problem that they want to solve and have, in many cases, started to build to it. In some cases, they've actually launched their company, but they've identified a problem and they've, they've gotten a, a good start at going after it. And uh, they want uh, they want help, for, just as the name says, accelerating their businesses. Whether it's figuring out how to go to market faster, figuring out how to raise the capital that they need to to continue to build their businesses, learning about how to be a great entrepreneurial leader. The nice thing about TechStars is that we're we run local local programs. So I do TechStars Seattle, but there are fifty of them around the world. And we only take 10 companies uh, at a time. So we give a very custom experience based on really what each founding team needs. And it's something that I've, I've really enjoyed because everybody needs something a little bit different depending on what industry they're in, what stage they're in, what their backgrounds were prior to being a founder. But what we ultimately offer is, I would say, dramatically increased chances of success at their entrepreneurial venture. So if you look at the, the, the alums of Techstars Seattle, there have been 120 companies that have gone through the program over the last 12 years. And of those, over 75% have exited or are still in business. And collectively, uh, they've raised 
well north of a billion. I think it's actually now approaching a billion and a half dollars in, in capital. And we have a number of bona fide unicorns that have gone through the program, including companies like uh, Remitly and Outreach and Zipline. Those are all companies that are valued well north of a billion. In fact, I, Remitly apparently is getting ready to file for their IPO and the expected value of that company is $5 billion. So it's an, it's an amazing story there. So that's what, that's what we do at Techstars. I can take very little credit for it. I've only been doing it for, for two years. Oh, no, you get all the credit. Absolutely. That's you just stand on the top of the shoulders of others. But I, I did not know the stat was a 75% either still going or, or had an exit. Because for context, when people think of startups, you think of high risk, like 90% of startups fail. It's a stat that gets thrown around. I don't know how much truth there is to that or how they measure it. But I, I from what I see, it is not out of the realm of what I think is realistic. And if I'm launching a startup, one of the first concerns is how do we de-risk this as much as possible to make sure it works? And obviously with the accelerator, they're getting a little bit of funding. I, I can't remember if it's 100,000 or 150,000, 120,000 from Techstars in exchange for a small bit of equity. But I think when you're thinking of a startup, it's really about accelerating your knowledge and your learnings as quick as possible before that money runs out or until you can get to a level of growth where it's sustainable. And I think getting the right mentors, getting the right people to advise you can be the difference in success or not. I, I think that's maybe the advantage with startup accelerators, but I don't know if people truly grasp because it is it can really fundamentally change your business model. Do you, do you think that's accurate as far as the main selling point for a lot of these founders? I think it's it's a hundred percent true that look, we we help people do things that they've never done before. We have we certainly have both a combination of serial entrepreneurs and first time entrepreneurs, but there's a whole bunch of knowledge. The mentorship is an absolute keystone of the program. So we have incredible mentors who are themselves either serially successful founders or their subject matter experts in a given function or industry and they're incredibly generous with their experience and their and their knowledge so they really help people get up to speed faster but i think the other really really key component of it is that we absolutely blow out people's networks so most founders don't show up knowing a whole bunch of investors or a whole bunch of people who can lead them to customers and between the global techstars network my network is an MD, the networks, and, and to use an old-fashioned term, Rolodexes of the mentors, the access that founders who come into Techstars get to customers, employees, and, and ultimately investors is 10 or 100x what they would have gotten if they tried to do it on their own. So I think the other really, really major point uh, and benefit of, of coming to an accelerator like Techstars is the, the access to the networks. And it really is... Uh, the kind of networking for the under-networked in a lot of cases. That, yeah, that makes total sense. Just trying to get that advantage and, and get that help. And so if I'm one of these founders, it's like, okay, that sounds fantastic. I want to get into Techstars. And they want to get their, their one pager on your desk or get intro to you. What can someone do to really stand out with their idea, with their company? They get someone like you excited about what they're doing. Yeah. Well, honestly, the first thing to do is is get to know me. <laughs> so I, I am a pretty accessible and available person. And I think that's true of most managing directors in the Techstars program, but show that you're interested in my program and that, that you have a you have a good reason for wanting to come. That's that's the starting point. Look, I, I certainly look I have a really high bar on on founders. I want people who are visionary, people who are brilliant, people who are have signs, some sign of resilience. Um, if you're a founding team, you want to show that you you can work well together and and get stuff done. I really, really like having founders who have founder market fit, who really deeply understand the uh, the opportunity or that they're going after, or the problem they're trying to solve from a very native and hopefully experienced standpoint. Those are all things that matter. By the way, nothing that I said there said that you had to be a three-time serial entrepreneur. Okay, most. Most of the people who come through our programs are first-time entrepreneurs, although we also get plenty of serial entrepreneurs who realize, hey, I need to fill out my knowledge in a certain area. I'd really like to explode my networks even further. But those, that's the first thing I look at is just how, how good is the team? So show that you're a really committed and, and sort of relevant founder. And then you need to be able to convince me that you're going after a really big market opportunity. By the way, I think there's nothing wrong 
with bootstrapping a company. In fact, many of the happiest people I know are people who run small software companies and have total control of their their destinies. But most of the companies that come through Techstars, we're looking for companies that can be venture scale, meaning that they're going to be able to generate 50 to $75 million of, or $100 million of recurring revenue in five to seven years. That's kind of the rough target that we're aiming for. So if you can if you can convince me that uh, you're a great founder and you're going after a big market opportunity, your odds of getting in are, 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 are really, really good. And it is, it is a very selective program. So one, one mistake that I think people make is that they try once, they don't get in, and then they never come back. And you should actually do the exact opposite. You, 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 can, apply to, you can apply to a Techstars program, to two programs at a time, six times a year. And again, we are global in terms of our coverage. And we have some vertically specific ones. We have some city programs like mine, but I would say apply early and apply often. And we, if there's, if there's one correlate between, with regard to who gets in, it's people who've applied multiple times. So there are a lot of companies that get in on their second or even third try. We had a great company that, that came through last year called New that, that came in on their third application to Techstar Seattle. And they've done great since. They raised a really nice pre-seed round. They're growing they're growing really rapidly right now, and I, I'm, I'm glad that they were tenacious enough to apply multiple times. We get we have the benefit if you do that. See, we have the benefit of saying, okay, this time we're not quite ready for you, but look, if you build a bunch of traction and get progress, we get to see that and we get to track it. So you know, I would just say, don't don't give up if you don't get in the first time. I heard a founder recently, who I don't know personally, say that they had applied something like seven times. And then they got in and they had a great experience and things have gone really well for them since. So be tenacious. That's one thing we look for in founders for sure. Yeah, that's a great data point. If you see them applying a couple of times, don't get in, but then you see traction following because they keep working on it, that has to help their resume. Because you just want to see, because you said you want founders that are relentless and that's a good way to kind of demonstrate it with your action. Yeah, that's right. And, and traction answers a lot of questions. So you, if you show up with a really, really early stage company, and let's say you don't even have an MVP yet, and you say, well, I, I can build product. Okay, well, I, I need some kind of evidence that you can build product. Now, maybe you've done it before at a prior company, in which case it's easier to take that leap. But if you haven't, then I might say, well, go show that you can build a little bit of product. Okay, it doesn't have to be, it can be an MVP, it can be something small, but traction in its various forms along the way just helps investors like Techstars answer answer questions. Can you elaborate on that? What are different forms of traction that you'd be looking for? Well, again, we, we take really early stage companies, so we don't necessarily expect that there, there is a ton of traction. Okay. Certainly we take companies that are that are pre-launch or certainly pre-revenue, sometimes pre-launch. I personally look for companies that are at least approaching an MVP. So because keep in mind we're an accelerator. So we're not an incubator. So if you don't know what you want to do, you would be wasting your time if you came to Techstars. We want people who have at least identified their opportunity set or their problem that they want to solve and have started to build towards it so that by the time you get into our program, you've got something to show to customers, something to show to investors. So, the, but I, I would, I guess the first example of traction is, can you build something? Okay. Then it's maybe, can you hire some people and show that you can recruit a team around you? It doesn't have to be a co-founder necessarily, but can you at least get people who are excited about your own mission and vision and, and who are excited to jump into the fray with you? From there, it's, can you, can you actually launch a product? Okay. Now you've launched a product. Can you, can you get a, a pilot? Can you get a free pay pilot? Can you get a paid pilot? Can you get customers? It's just every step along the way is, is, is more traction. And and so depending on the type of investor you're talking to, the, you know, I always say more traction is better, but for tech stars and for an accelerator like ours, you don't have to have a whole lot. Yeah, I, I like that call out too. Attraction could be assembling a team of people that are excited to work on what you're doing. Because at the end of the day, a lot of times startups are successful based on the culture you build and the people you accumulate. So if you can show that early on, hey, this person's a magnet for talent. This is a good sign of what's to come. I, I actually didn't think about that one. That's a really good call out. The other ones totally make sense. Another thing you hit on that's a good call out is this idea of founder market fit. Because if there is this big market opportunity, why are you as a founder uniquely positioned to be the one to lead it? And I think sometimes when that's off, it really starts to unravel. But when it's true, 
it can really be an unfair advantage someone has. No, a hundred percent. If if you there, there's so many reasons why it helps and why it's beneficial. And, and and to be clear, there are plenty of successful startups where the founders might not have had founder market fit, but it it usually takes them a longer time to get off the ground because their intuition about their customers and what kind of product they have to build to solve their customers' problems is going to be less less clear to someone who doesn't know much about the space. And also, I think the other thing is that having that founder market fit often means that there's some real spark of passion for, for the idea and the opportunity because you maybe suffered through the problem as a customer or you were a vendor and you saw that your customers really needed something that nobody else in the market was serving. And so having that that familiarity with it is and, and and then saying hey i care enough about this to take the the plunge and go start a company to go do this is going to going to have sort of a lasting thing whereas if you're if you're just kind of new to an idea and you're just sort of kicking tires and you stumble into something that you don't know much about it's pretty easy to lose the passion and the and the commitment to it so i i look at a lot of the companies who just went through our latest techstars cohort and and again, there's a, a lot of them have really serious founder market fit, but you take somebody like Erin at, at Pear Tree, she is herself on a two times adoptive parent and she saw how painful the adoption process was and how, how kind of archaic and inefficient today the, 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 the current systems and, and processes are. And so she said, well, I'm going to go dedicate my life to fixing it and making it better for both, for both expecting moms and adoptive parents. And that kind of spark will take her for the next decade or more. So, and that's, that's super important. That's a great call out. Yeah. Her pitch almost like moved me to tears. It was so good. And that's just something when someone's so passionate about what they're working on, it really does attract the right people and make you want to jump on board. But then the, the counter to that, you could look at an Airbnb where those guys didn't have experience in hospitality. Maybe that was their advantage by being naive. They didn't really know what they were getting into. And then they break out. It's for every piece of advice, there's the counter advice. But I really do like that idea of, of founder market fit. I, I think when it's done right, it's it's really impactful. Yeah, no, uh, you're, you're 100% right. I'd love to hit on, you probably get this question a lot, but I'm, I'm still going to ask it because I'm very intrigued. You have to have your finger on the pulse. You're getting thousands of resumes and you have to select what teams you like, but also what industries and categories you like. So as you're about to get flooded with all these applications coming in, what are some industries you're you're footnoting? I'd be interested if a startup pops up there, whether it's something that's very obvious or something that's emerging or maybe something old that needs to be done the right way. But I'd love to know where your head is at. Yeah. I'm going to give you a terribly disappointing answer to this question because... (laughs) The fact of the matter is that one of the fun things about about my job as MD of Techstars Seattle, which is a generalist program, is I get to look at everything and anything. And I really actually try hard not to restrict myself to a particular set of verticals uh, or industries. And I try to be as open-minded as possible because I think some of the most interesting things do come from left field. Now, look, I will, I will always gravitate to things that I know about and have done before. I've done a lot of enterprise stuff. I know enterprise SaaS really well. I know, I know enough about machine learning and AI to be quite dangerous given my experience with Mighty AI. So I'm always going to take an interest in that kind of thing. I, I love computer vision companies because I worked on a, com- a computer vision team before, and I really think it's a, it's going to be a source of innovation and disruption for decades to come. But look, this past this this past cohort, we had five marketplace companies with a bunch of consumer facing motions. And so, so I'm really, really quite industry agnostic. I won't general, I won't take any hardcore life science because I don't know anything about it. One of my filters is I do have to believe that I can help a founding team come in. And if, if I know nothing about what you're doing and I don't feel like my network, I could, I, I could quickly get you network to help you. I'm going to be a little more hesitant. I don't, I at least have not yet done any real hard hardware intensive companies. I'll, I'll probably break that rule sooner or later, but it would certainly be a higher hurdle for me because again, I, I don't have as much experience in that, in that arena. But I do want to believe that I can help your company. And by the way, the, you, I always tell founders, you got to do dil- due diligence on your investors too. And the hard question that founders should ask me if you're interviewing for Techstar Seattle is, okay, what can you do to help me, right? What can you do in terms of your network and your experience that's relevant to me? And if I can't answer that question well, then you should think hard about whether or not it's the right thing for you. 
So, but anyway, so I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite industry agnostic. I will throw out just a random thing. Cause I, I, I really, I, I would love to have a company like this come into my program just because it's something that's a personal area of passion and interest. I've always been interested in virtual world companies going back 25 years. Cause my first startup was a 3d graphic software company. And this, I doubt too many people will remember these companies, but in the late nineties, there were a bunch of virtual world companies like black sun and world's Inc. And of course, second life. And it just has always been an area of interest of mine. I, I wound up being on the board of a video game company called CCP Games, and they have a virtual world game called EVE Online. And it's just something that I love. And I think it's going to be an important part of our, of frankly, human existence in the future. And there's so much to be done in that area. So if you're doing a really interesting virtual world company, one way or the other, I'd love to, I'd love to meet you no matter what. So, but again, I'll, I'll look at anything. I really have the the luxury of, of being able to cast wide nets near and far from an industry perspective. I know that's a terrible answer, but it's true. Actually, you, it started as, I thought it was going to be a terrible answer, but you rattled off six industries that you're interested in, and then one you could call innovative. And with C, CP Games, you were on the board of that company that was then acquired for $425 million, right? So you've, you've seen the growth trajectories. So you went to undergrad at Stanford, you got your MBA at Harvard. I mean, those are two obviously very prestigious universities that from a business and leadership and entrepreneurial perspective are, are very desirable to go to. What's your kind of takeaway from having both those experiences, the difference culturally and kind of what you got from it? Because I think a lot of people that aspire to go to those would love to hear you comparing and contrasting the two. Okay, well, can I just say right now, don't take my advice on this because I went there, I went to those places a long, long time ago. I don't know that my my experience is going to be as relevant as as a more recent graduate. But look, I love I love both places and both experiences. When I went to Stanford, it was a gathering of thousands of these amazing Renaissance people, scholar athletes, people who had a real notion of civic duty, people who were really curious about the world and wanted to try all kinds of different things, work really hard, but also had a lot of fun. And of course, weather in, in, in Northern California is really nice. It's a great place to go to school. I loved every minute of it. And my, my actually, my oldest is starting there in the fall and I, try, I have to try really hard I'll have to try really hard not to, not to live uh, relive my experience vicariously through him, nor try to you know push him to to recreate my experience. He, he needs to lead his own life and, and do his own thing. Harvard was also great back then. Maybe I could. It's a very broad brushstroke. I'd say it was maybe a little more conventional. There were people who it was like a trade school, so everybody was going to go into business. There weren't there weren't many many people who were aspiring artists there. They were there to. to to, to go into business. But I learned a ton. I met a bunch of amazing people. I mean, and, and the benefit, one of the long-term benefits of both places is that the networks that I built there through friends is just staggering. I mean, the things that people go on to achieve from those places is is amazing. And I mean, my, my Andy Jassy was in my business school section and now he's going to, he's going to run Amazon. And there are a lot of people like that. He's, he's, he's in a class of his own, I suppose. But so it's so look, that's the benefit of going to places like that. That's the benefit of going to Techstars is access to network, which really, really does help you as you're building your businesses, as you're developing your career. And it's interesting because I actually, I don't think the world is well served by building a narrow group of well-connected elites. And so one of the things that I believe in with Techstars and that i like and then one of my one of the investment themes I like is hey let's democratize access to networks let's make it easier for people to get access to people who can help them not say hey you're going to be one of the very lucky lucky fortunate few who get to go to these elite academic institutions and you know you get your ticket punched one of the things that those schools are doing that I do by the way is they are making very very conscious efforts to find kids from underrepresented backgrounds, from, from lower income backgrounds, kids who, who's, who are the first in their family to go to college. I think it's a very well, it's a, it's a very good effort and I hope they do more of it. But I, nonetheless, if you happen to be fortunate enough and have the wherewithal to go to a place like that, I think you should because the, the, the network benefit in the long run is, is staggering. Yeah, I think that's a really good call out because it's one thing to work hard. It's one thing to be relentless. That's execution and all that stuff is so important. But if you can, on top of that, be able to have a network or get access to 
people or organizations or opportunities, it can just open up so many doors. Because even myself, as I'm running this remote team in Seattle, I could stare at my computer, not talk to anybody else and just have a network of my employees or my, my team members. And that's not a good way to go about it. And so creating those opportunities where you can you know, network and have access is so important. And one thing I'm seeing with what you've done is from your educational background to what you've done with General Catalyst, VC firms, what you've done with Techstars, it's, it's been kind of a theme that I don't know if people truly focus on that as much, but it, it really can make the difference in doors that open for your career or not. No real question there, but it's just something I'm kind of, I'm seeing, but it's a really good call out. Let me be really clear on one other thing, which is that as, a, as an investor, I will take hustle, determination, and capability over any kind of pedigree that you might have any day of the week, okay? Because I know plenty of people who went to Stanford and Harvard who didn't work that hard and didn't do that great because they didn't have the drive and the determination. So I will take, I will take capability and hustle and grit ahead of any stamp that you might have on your resume. I evaluate my own self on like, hey, what have I done for people lately? I went, I went to those places a long, long time ago. That is glad that I did. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm proud that I did, but I don't, I, I don't define my, myself by something I did a long time ago. Yeah, that's a good call. And even if you can't, like I didn't go to Stanford or Harvard, I went to the the Harvard of the Sunflower State, right? University of Kansas. So for me, it's, you can find other ways to get access and and to network, whether that's through like tech stars or a Slack community or something, but it's just putting yourself out there and trying to be helpful. I think good things can come back in return, but it it does take effort and being somewhat intentional to do that. Okay. So I can go into your resume. It's been really cool to see the common theme around you've worked on big ideas. You've had these big exits literally out of the gate. I think you right out of college, you started a company that you're able to sell. So I'll just rattle off these things. You've sold. A, you've been a part of a company either as a board member or as the CEO or the executive team where you've sold a company to Uber, to Google. You've helped raise over $200 million for one company. You've had a company acquired for $425 million, and you've deployed $130 million in funding at General Catalyst. Like That is staggering just seeing how intentional you've been in all of that. So what I'd love to hear is, and maybe you could do this with a few examples. When you choose a project to go on, is that something that you're thinking through ahead of time? Hey, if I'm going to spend my time and I'm going to do something, I'm going to go big. Or is it the opposite? Were you like, hey, I'm just following a passion and it just so happened to lead to these things? Because as people that are looking to do big things, you've done it over and over again. So I'd love to just kind of learn what's going through your mind as you're taking on new projects and doing new things. Oh, interesting question. The, the the response that leaps to mind, Jim, is that I actually look for things that sit on the intersection of I find this really interesting, and I think it has the opportunity to be a big a big market opportunity it, it, that that it could become a big market opportunity or or, or already is. Uh, I actually learned about the pain of doing something small and quite niche with that first company. It was, it was actually out of business school, but I, my brother and I started a 3D graphic software business and it really did turn out to be a, a niche market, which just made life harder. It was a good outcome. I mean, the one thing that one thing that we did right is we didn't raise too much money. I see a lot of people raise too much money for ideas that wind up not being that big and that's never, never a fun thing to do, but it really did. And I remember business school professors telling me, well, this is a really terrible opportunity. Don't, don't do this. This is a tiny little market. You're not going to enjoy it. I'm like, no, it's going to be huge. It's totally going to be huge. You're wrong. And he was totally right. But I think that that made me really, really put a, put an emphasis when I was evaluating opportunities subsequently on, okay, do I think that this thing's going to really be big? And, and let me really kind of take an intellectually honest view of that. But the other axis that has to intersect for me, for any opportunity going forward in in recent years that I learned way, way, way too late in life is there have to be great people involved. And I think especially as a younger VC, I would get really wrapped up in market opportunity for sure, big thematic ideas and a lot around, hey, is this business model going to be great? And I put not nearly enough weight on hey, are these founders going to be great? Are these founders exceptional? And I 
my experience, I think the one thing you can control as an entrepreneurial founder is, hey, am I going to, am I and my co-founders and my leadership team, are we going to be great leaders? Can we attract really great people, build a really terrific culture and motivate and lead high performance teams that are really, really effective? Because that's about the only thing you can control. I can't control my luck. Can't really control too much whether or not the market opportunity becomes big. That's a lot more luck than anything else, other than hopefully doing some reasonable analysis up front to to make a, a good guess about it. But it's it's the leadership and the quality of the team that matters. And I didn't put enough emphasis on that early. And and for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, that's the starting thing. Just I someone can show up with the greatest idea in the world, but if I don't think that they're gonna be a great a great leader and a great entrepreneur, you know, great founder, I'm going to almost certainly not move ahead. Yeah. It's, it's so easy to want to look at the numbers, the market opportunity, but at the end of the day, it's, is this person, someone that brings you energy, you're going to learn from and just going to like help each other go to that next level. Yeah. It's, it sounds so simple, but it's really easy to overlook that and fall in love, in love with the idea of something. So speaking of that, so that's a good, so you're a general catalyst, you, and you can talk about what that is. It's an amazing opportunity. You leave it to essentially go do your own thing, which involves you going to Iceland. And so I'd love to hear what made you go to that, to Vern Global and kind of walk us through that. Cause it's a, it's a pretty impressive story. But yeah. In hindsight, frankly, a little bit crazy. So what happened was, so I was, I was a principal general catalyst, and in 2006, I invested in CCP Games, which is this video game, massively multiplayer, uh, online role-playing game business, and they happened to be based in Reykjavik, Iceland. So I wasn't looking for Iceland, I was looking for that type of company, and I found these incredible, these incredible founders who were Icelandic, and, and Hilmar and Rainier, and, have, and to this day, they're dear friends of mine. And, I love Iceland, and you'll hear more about that in a second. But but I, I start, so I started going to Iceland on business, and I just fell in love with the place. I love the people. I love the culture. I love the country itself, the land. Almost everything about Iceland I love. And I've, I've been there now, I think, well over 200 times. My family and I have spent 11 summers there for at least a month uh, and longer sometimes. I even owned an apartment there for a while. And anyway... About a year after we made this investment in CCP Games, the Hilmar, the CEO, pulled me aside and said, hey, Isaac, you really ought to take a look at building data centers here in Iceland. And I, the idea struck me like a bolt of lightning. They, they had thought about it. They talked about it academically in Iceland, but no one had ever done it. And I knew enough about data centers, having looked at other data center businesses in, in the States and, and in, in continental Europe to say... Yeah, it's a great market. It's it's going to be big and growing forever. And Iceland is sort of the perfect place to put a data center. And by the way, why, why is that? Because at that time, data centers were becoming all about power, so just becoming more and more power intensive. And Iceland is like this perfect battery for Europe and in, in that it has a ton of electricity. It's dirt cheap. Uh, it's the cheapest source of electricity in, in Western Europe. And it was 100% renewable. So you could build one of the most environmentally and economically efficient data centers in the world. And you had seen this already sort of playing out here in the Pacific Northwest with Google and Microsoft building these mega data centers on, on the backs of these fallow hydro contracts that had been left by the aluminum smelters. Well, guess what there is in Iceland? There are a bunch of aluminum smelters. And they built this incredible power generation and distribution network on 100% renewable electricity, hydro and geothermal. So I just fell in love with the idea. And the only problem was there was no incumbent company to invest in. So at the time, a general catalyst, if we had an investment thesis that we really liked, but no company to invest in, we would just go and hatch or start the company ourselves. And we did that. I was there when Joel Cutler put together Kayak. He got wow. Steve Hafter and Paul English together and said, I want to, I, I really believe in, in, in vertical search for travel and, and you two are the ones to do it. Let's go do it. And that was a remarkable outcome. It went public and was acquired and was acquired for two billion dollars two years later. So, fortunately, Vern didn't hasn't had quite the same outcome yet. But anyway, I, I so I went to I went to my partners and said, "Hey, I really love this idea. We have this great co-investor in Iceland. We now know the place fairly well. What do you think?" And everybody loved it. So I formed the company. I seeded it, and I, I, I became executive vice chairman. We 
got a friend of mine who's sort of the Bill Gates of Iceland, Thorsteinsson Vili, to be the chairman. And we, we really did sort of the first year was just proof of concept. Hey, is this really going to work? We got to really diligence this. One of the first things we realized is we can't do this if there's not more connectivity to Iceland. There's only one a submarine cable connecting Iceland to the rest of the world. So I'm sorry, can I jump in real quick? Are you full-time now on, on Vern, or are you still kind of splitting time? And my day job as a principal at General Catalyst, I wound up spending probably about half my time that first year working on this. And what I spent most of my time was was running around Iceland with, with Vili, trying to convince the Icelandic government to lay a new submarine cable so that we would have two modern high bandwidth cables, high bandwidth cables connecting Iceland to the rest of the world. And to make a really, really long, crazy story short, we uh, we convinced them to do it, and they and they went ahead and laid an eighty million dollar submarine cable to uh, to Denmark from Iceland, and there was to complement one. Wait, how do you convince them to spend eighty million dollars? They had been thinking about it for a while. It's not like I planted the idea, just to be really and and needed to do it from a national security standpoint because Iceland's a very advanced, digitally deep nation, and being being tied to to Europe with one cable was really not healthy. So they'd been thinking about it and they did know that data centers were an opportunity. And so we said, look, if you build this cable, we'll be the first customer. We'll, do, we'll give you a big offtake contract so you can go in and finance it. And it was a big chicken and egg exercise. There's a whole bunch of drama around it, but we got them to do it. And so once we knew that that was going to happen, we said, okay, this is this is a real opportunity Let's put some real money in and go recruit a real team. We'd had a bunch of consultants working with us. And so we, we, put, we put in some real money. We were really fortunate to, uh, to find uh, this incredible CEO-CTO combination, Jeff Monroe and Tate Cantrell, who were my business partners for years afterwards, and who had built DuPont Fabros, which is one of the biggest data center companies here in the States. Jeff was one of the co-founders. He was there through their IPO and beyond, and Tate was his right-hand technical and operations guy the whole way through. So we, we got them on board. We bought 200,000 square feet of, of warehouse space on the old NATO Naval Air Station and uh, that we were going to retrofit. Uh, we had a big power contract, a big bandwidth contract. And then everyone said, hey, we really need a money person. Isaac, why don't you go be CFO? And I said, how could I, how could I refuse? This is my baby. There's nothing I care more about than this. I do actually care quite deeply about the environment, and my wife is an is, is, is an, my wife is an environmental scientist by 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 training, and like wow, this is a chance to build an incredible business in a really big growing market that also is incredibly good for the environment. We we use no carbon to service our customers. I mean, there's again every electron on the Icelandic grid is renewably generated, so we are super 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 environmentally efficient. So I said, yeah. I'll do it. I'll, I'll absolutely sign on to be the CFO. Yeah, I'll do it for a year or two. And then it turned into 10. It was a company that I just, I, I loved. I loved Iceland. I loved the people involved. It was a really, really important and good thing to do. And it was one of those ones, here's, way, here's how I think about it. And, and I would encourage anyone who's thinking about starting a company to use this framework. It was one of these things that I was losing sleep over in terms of my excitement about it. It was one of these things where I said, if I don't do this, I'll probably spend the rest of my life regretting that I didn't at least try it. But I think that's a good litmus test to think about if you're not sure whether or not you want to start your company. Do you feel that passionate about it? If you do, then maybe it's the right thing to do. But if, you're, if you don't, then maybe you shouldn't. Because I, I think if you're going to do a, a startup right, you have to be all in. That's a great framework. So anyway, and then I, I thought I was going to do it for a year or two and maybe go back to investing and it turned into a decade-long odyssey and uh, it was easily the hardest thing I've ever done and uh, also the most fun. So, Yeah, that's amazing. And being CFO, but also working with the local government to get stuff done, you're, you're wearing lots of hats. So yeah, super impressive. And so what, what's kind of this, where's Vern Global at today? Yeah, it's a it's a growing, profitable data center. It's one of the bigger data third party data centers in the Nordic region. They've raised more money since I, since I left. It's a, if you look online, you'll see it's a very very large facility near uh, the Keflavik Airport out 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 in in Iceland. It just kind of grows year over year, and uh, it's it's profitable now, and uh, it's, in a, it's a lovely business. I really <laughs> I don't know what to say. I'm something I'm very proud of. But I, I did it for ten years and. And at, at, right at the 10-year mark, I 
in 2017, I said, it's, it's probably time to do something a little different. I, I was, I was kind of cruising a little bit. We were also living in, we'd moved to London to do this. And my, my oldest was about to start high school and we thought, well, maybe we need to come back to the States for that. And again, I've been doing this for 10 years. It's, it's a very comfortable job, but I'm a little too, I'm a little too young to not put, not be putting myself out of my comfort zone and the company was in good hands. So I made a tough decision to, to go to my, my colleagues and our board and investors who I'm very close with and say, I think it's time for, time for me to move back to the States and it's, and we're going to probably move to the West coast, in which case I can't really do this job anymore. And so I had a, a very long tail. It, I took the better part of a year to, to make sure that the transition went smoothly. And then and I finished at the, my last official day of work was December 31st, 2018. Yeah. So it was, it was an incredible ride. I mean, I, I tell my full founder story to the, to the Techstars folks and the, the twists and turns that that company took, the, the global crisis in 2008, the volcano in 2010. Every horrible thing that you could think of happened to this company and, and, and we still survived. So it was great. Wow. Yeah. Survive a downturn, survive a volcano erupting. Yeah. That's, those are, that's good stuff. Amazing. I, I have two more questions I want to hit on. You, you're on a lot of boards. You're obviously very much an advisor role at Techstars. What, what advice would you give to any mentors or advisors that are looking to help people that are just getting started or to help founders. Any thoughts on that? The counsel that we certainly give to our mentors is it, it's actually often, it's far more impactful if you're asking good, hard questions than trying to give answers. And in fact, I have to encourage our mentors not to be overly dogmatic because a lot of times you're giving an opinion or a perspective about what worked for you, but every situation is different. And so at the very least, you should caveat advice with, this is what we did. Okay. Now this is, these are the situations, this is the context, here's why it worked. But the founder really has to make the decision on whether or not that advice is relevant. So the other thing I would say to someone in that mentor or advisor board role is don't take it personally. If the founder decides that they're not going to go with your advice, your job is to give them a set a, a perspective and they should if they're doing their job they should get a bunch of perspectives but it's it's just like child rearing i have found that it's far better for my kids to figure things out on their own than for me to tell them what to do and it's much better to to ask them the questions well why why did you do that was that a good idea let's think through this was that really a solid idea well it's kind of the same thing with with providing advice to founders let let them figure stuff out because uh, it's going to stick much, much harder than you saying you should go and do this. And by the way, you better be careful about saying you should go and do this because, again, it worked for you, but it might not work for them. They're different people. It's a different company. It's, it's a different time. And the other thing I would just say, occasionally you see some board members or advisors or, or mentors really trying to run the company for the founder. And I, I don't think that's a good idea. It's the founder's company. And in the vast, vast, vast majority of cases, in my experience, it's the founders who ultimately determine the success or the failure of the company. They get lots and lots of great advice, which they should. Every now and then, a board member or advisor really does make a very, very tangible difference uh, to the outcome of a company. But the bottom line is it's the founders and the operators who really make it happen. They're the ones who are in the trenches day in, day out, and you need to let them run their company. So, And if you get to the point where where you're having to intercede and try to run their company or take a really firm hand in that role of board member, advisor, founder, probably things have gone horribly awry. So that's, that's my general advice. That's really good advice. You don't have to have the answers, but having the questions to help them figure it out so they can be good at critical thinking and navigate the company. That that's a really good call out, and I'm totally going to steal that advice for parenting. So thank you for that. Absolutely. I, here's here's my if if my kid asks me why and I can't give an answer, I have failed. If I ever have to say because I told you to, because I told you so, I have failed. Yeah, you can only play that card three times, and you run out of those by the time they're four. So yeah, you've got to get a, a different 
a different playbook. One one question that I like to ask is, what's the nicest thing anyone has done for you in your professional career? Boy, there there so I, I tried really hard to work, especially in this last you know decade and a half with really nice people. So lots of things. If can I answer a slightly different question, what's the most impactful thing that was in you know generated by niceness or I, I guess good intent? I point to a few things. First is early in my career at General Catalyst, one of my kids, when they were born, they had to have a bunch of surgery. They were really quite sick. Thankfully, they're doing great now. But Joel Cutler and the partners at General Catalyst were incredibly supportive and helpful in terms of allowing me the space and the support to, to help my kid. And frankly, they opened incredible doors at, at Boston's Children's Hospital that would have been a lot harder to open but for their help. And I'm, I'm eternally grateful to them for that. And then not to turn this into a commercial for, for the Foundry Group, but twice in my life, partners at Foundry have had massive impact on outcomes for, for companies that I've been involved in. The first was my, my first company, this, this little 3D graphic software business that Brad Feld was an angel in. When we were selling the company at the 11th hour, the, 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 the CEO got cold feet. And my brother and I, 20-something, first-time founders are just freaking out. We're running out of money and, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And Brad just said, don't worry, boys, I got this. And he went in and cast his, his magic Brad felt pixie dust on this CEO and, and the deal closed, thankfully. So I was really appreciative of, of that. And then in my last company at Mighty AI, Jason Mendelson was the, the partner from Foundry. And Jason did one of the most founder sort of pro-founder things I've ever seen an investor do, which is that we went and said, well, shortly after I got there, I realized the company really needed some more time before it could go out for a proper fundraise. And we came, we went to the board investors and said, look, we'd like to do a preemptive inside bridge so that we can make the hires that we want and operate in you know the way that we think we should be running this company. But if we don't, we're going to have to hold back because we need to make sure that our runway lasts as long as possible. And I think that the instinct for most investors would be to say, no, no, yeah, we got you covered. We got you covered. So two months before you're out of money, then we'll, we'll fund you. Okay. And that always puts the founder in this incredibly uncomfortable position where you have no leverage and you don't know for sure that it's going to happen. Jason said to us, and then the rest of the board, including Soma and Greg Gottesman, quickly, quickly followed suit. But Jason said, Look, you presented us with a really good plan. I buy the plan. I agree that you should continue to to grow and to to uh, to operate without fear. So yes, let's do a let's do a preemptive inside round long before you're going to run out of money, so that you can run the business in a in an optimal way and not a risk averse way. And it made all the difference. And I'm I'm so grateful. And I just point 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 him out as an as a and foundry because of their ethos about being founder first and founder supportive. Like they didn't have to do that, and it, it's not the thing that most investors I think would do. But his instinct was okay. I I believe in this team. They presented a good plan. They've done their homework. Let's get behind them. And and it worked out really well for everybody. We sold the company to Uber about a year later, and it all worked out. But I always use that as a as a kind of a hallmark for what a great investor will do. And I don't know if it was, was it the nicest thing? I guess there's some self-interest, but it was a risky thing to do because he didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't have to do that. He could have done the, the more natural thing to do, which is say, yeah, we got you covered. Come back to us in three or four months. And if you still need the money, then then we'll, then we'll, 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 we'll take care of it. But he said, no, I want you to operate in the way that you think is best. And that means hiring some more people, continuing to invest in your growth. So let's do this. And he pulled it through. And then thankfully, the rest of the investors in the board were supportive. So that's my, those are some of the, those are the most impactful things. Yeah, it's one thing to talk about being founder first, but actually to do it, they've probably been in that position before. So they, they totally get it. But you know, those are really good call outs. And I, I like the reference to the Brad Feld, who's one of the founders of Techstars and his magic fairy dust, because he seems to have a pretty nice impact on founders being able to speak their language. So very cool stuff. Isaac, I can't thank you enough for taking it. My pleasure. My pleasure. I just, can I just say, I've, I've left one of the group out. Same thing happened at, 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 at Vern with our Icelandic investors in General Catalyst. They backed us up at a time when they just didn't have to. And Novator, General Catalyst guys were, were amazing. Was that during the financial crisis whenever they stepped in? Yeah. In particular, our Icelandic investors were themselves. They were hurting. They weren't in a happy place, but we needed more money and they absolutely stepped up and, and, and backed, uh, backed us up. And 
and perpetually and eternally grateful to them. So anyway. Yeah. Well, especially this business, it's all about relationships and playing the long game with people you really believe in. So I'm sure they saw that with the, the Vern Global team. No, that's that's really good stuff. Honestly, I've, I've got six really good pieces of advice from this, whether you're a founder or someone trying to grow a company regardless of the role. But Isaac, where could people get more stuff or information about you or about Techstars? Where could they follow up? Yep. I'm super easy to find. I'm on Twitter as Isaac Cato, I-S-A-A-C-K-A-T-O. Techstars is techstars.com and, and that's easy. You can get me on LinkedIn. I'm, there are not a lot of Isaac Katos in the world. There, I think there are a couple in uh, Nigeria and I think there's one in Uganda, but I'm, uh, I like to meet them someday, but <laughs> they're not me. And uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm a moderate social media producer. I, I, I've done Clubhouse not haven't gotten hooked yet. We'll see, but I'm easy to find. And again, I'm, I'm really easy to find. If you're a founder, I'd love to talk to you. My colleague, China, who's our senior program manager, Techstars, and I have a 100% commitment to meet with every diverse founder who asks for a meeting or a call. So fear not and ask away. We love talking to entrepreneurs. That's our job. So come and find us. Yeah, I totally agree that the Techstars network really does value relationships and people regardless of the stage you're at just to like be helpful. So I think you guys definitely practice what you preach. So Isaac, this was awesome. Again, thank you so much for the time and, and all the, the kind of stories. It's fun for me to just be a fly on the wall and hear it. But but thank you so much. Well, Jim, it was, it was such a pleasure and an enjoyable, uh, an enjoyable hour now. And again, thank you so much for uh, for having me on your on your podcast and and more importantly for for mentoring in the program and helping out our founders you make a massive massive difference in their in their lives and in their journey so we appreciate it Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money, but I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growthit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of a hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.